to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 130, recorded July 6th, 2013. So today we are doing Next Generation miniseries Shadowheart 1, 2, and 3. Yes. Pretty good. I do like the story so far. Unfortunately, we don't get to the last chapter of it in this episode. Right. So uh, issue number four we will do next week along with Deep Space Nine Annual Number 1 next week, along with Shadowheart Number 4. Oh, cool. Okay, good. Because I do want to see what happens. Yeah. So, you know, we don't have another something that's going to make you have to wait uh, you uh, know, a four, month, four weeks or whatever to get to the okay. end. Okay, <laughs> cool. Good. We're good. not that mean. We're not that mean. Yeah. So overall, I do like the story. Um, yeah, so far I like it. Yeah, the characters are, are good. You know, they're not doing a lot of dumb things or boring things. It's all moving along at a good clip. There's a, a, a few little head-scratchers uh, that we'll talk about sh- shortly. Okay. But uh, but I agree with you for the most part. Right. And just who is this Shadowheart? Exactly. Who is this strange Shadowheart man that looks somehow like Paul Sarvino on the cover of issue one? Which yeah. should be a hint for those of you in the know with all the TV episodes. Should be. Should be. If you happen to see that particular episode. But I don't want to give anything. I don't want to be a spoiler. I'm back right. off on the spoilers. Well, you want to jump into it? I'd be happy to. So the first issue of Shadow Heart is titled The Lion and the Lamb. Published date is December 1994. The creative team includes Michael Jan Friedman as the writer. Steve Irwin. Yes, the crocodile hunter is the penciler. Mm, probably not. Inker, Charles Barnett III. Colorist is Tom McGraw. Letterer is Bob Panaha. Editor is Margaret Clark. The cover features actor Paul Sarvino's head in a brown hood placed in the upper left-hand quadrant of the cover. The skin around his right eye looks mottled or somehow scarred, but other than that, he looks human. In the lower right-hand quadrant is Worf, on alert, with a tricorder in his left hand. He is standing on a rusty brown planetscape with some sort of structures in the far distance and a weird four-foot-high object in the lower left quadrant. The object sort of looks like four sword blades pointing straight up and coming out of a base made of a clump of smooth oval egg-shaped things. The issue opens with a small Klingon patrol craft flying low over the treetops of planet Nathra. In the craft are five anxious Klingon warriors looking for Nathrani rebel hideouts. These Nathrani have raided three Klingon supply depots in the past week and left a bloody mess in their wake. The Klingons have been extracting resources from this planet for the past 100 years and the locals don't appreciate it one bit. The unusual gases in the planet's air interfere with the Klingon sensors and breathing. 
An older Klingon in the back complains about how Gauron's new rules are preventing them from torching the jungles to ash and exterminating every Nathrani in existence. He longs for the old days and says someday they will return over Gauron's dead body. They talk about what good prey the Nathrani make and that some say they might be an offshoot of the Klingon race. The old man says some claim Nathra is the ancient kingdom of the demon Shadowheart. The others scoff, just as the scout craft is hit by an energy weapon that eventually results in the craft's destruction. On the ground, a group of hairy Nathrani are shaking swords, Klingon knives, and energy weapons into the air at the exploding craft. They are mostly dressed in ragged, primitive clothing. However, one of them is not aggressively celebrating and is not dressed in the same way as the rest. He is in red clothes that cover his entire body, including his head with a hood. Some decorations on his clothing appear to be Klingon characters. His nose, mouth, and lower jaw, which are the only parts visible, look human. The unusual one tells his companions to drink deeply of the victory. There will be many more hot drafts like that before they are done. The title page features the Enterprise-D in orbit around Lasarion, which is close to the Klingon border. Picard's log tells us that they are there at the agricultural world to perform a sad duty. They beam down with Worf's parents, the Rajenkos, and Alexander to attend the funeral of their son and Worf's adoptive brother. He and hundreds of his fellow colonists were massacred by unknown raiders who took their crop, a valuable medical grain. Nothing is left of the colony but a monument and people from a neighboring community who are paying their respects also. One of the neighboring representatives remembers Nikolai as a leader and protector of others. That triggers surprise by Mr. Rajenko who remembers Nikolai as an impulsive and chaotic person. Perhaps the characteristics that led to his dropping out of Starfleet Academy and severing all ties with them. He traveled and eventually arrived at the colony where he died before the Rajenkos could speak to him again. Later, after the ceremony, Worf leads a security detail to the wreckage of the destroyed colony. Desora reports to Worf that her tricorder detected residual traces of Klingon disruptor fire. Concerned, Worf asks her to double-check her readings before he reports them to Picard. Meanwhile, on Nothra, Sub-Commander Menek of a floating Klingon installation is overseeing the transport of disruptor cannons from an orbiting Klingon ship to his installation. He complains how slow they are in coming, given their need to defend against the rebels. He says it's as if the Council wants the Nathrani to succeed. The captain of the orbiting vessel overhears the commander's comments and chastises him for them. Just then, a dozen or more two-man flying sleds with rebel fighters aboard attack the Klingon installation. A pitched battle takes place and finally ends when the mysterious cloaked leader of the rebels introduces himself as Shadowheart and puts a blade through Sub-Commander Menk's heart. The captain of the orbiting Klingon ship witnesses the whole thing and orders a security squad to be formed and transported to the station. 
But before that can happen, Shadowheart orders the installation shield to be raised and all its weaponry be taken. Meanwhile, the Rajenkos are now safely on a starbase and watching the departing Enterprise. They say they hope Worf will be all right and not blame himself for what happened to Nikolai. As Worf is seated in a very uncomfortable-looking chair on the Enterprise, he is thinking back to his Starfleet Academy days. He and Nikolai attended at the same time. Nikolai was bullied by other cadets over the fact that he had a Klingon for a brother. Worf would intervene and kick some bully butt. Unfortunately, Nikolai reacted badly to his brother's aid. It seemed that despite Nikolai being the older brother, it was always Worf who got him out of jams and overshadowed his accomplishments. From the time they were kids up to now, and he is sick of it. Nikolai quits Starfleet to get space from his brother and find his own place in the world. Worf is snapped out of his reverie by Captain Picard, who asks him to join Admiral Quinn and other officers in the observation lounge. The Admiral has some important news for them all. The Admiral informs Picard and his staff that Nikolai Rojenko is alive and leading a revolt on the planet of Nathra under the name Shadowheart. Worf is shocked. The Admiral presents recordings from the Klingon installation on Nathra, where it is attacked and taken over. The footage clearly shows Nikolai in the red hooded clothes. Worf concurs that is his brother, larger somehow and scarred, but definitely him. When the Klingons saw a human was leading the Nathrani rebels, they contacted the Federation to identify the human. The Admiral offers the theory that Nikolai could be doing this out of vengeance for the destruction of his colony on Lyserion. Worf says his brother was never much of a fighter, yet now he is living with the Nathrani savages and even leading them into battle? Worf is finding all this hard to believe. The Admiral says Nikolai is probably not the man Worf once knew. Also, the Nathrani are excellent fighters, but not much in the strategy department. They might have embraced someone like Nikolai who could help them take back their world. An incoming transmission allows Gauron to join the briefing. He asks Worf to help bring his brother to heal before more people learn that a human is leading the Nathrani rebels. There is already growing talk in the Empire about the Klingons having more in common with the Romulans than the races of the Federation. If word becomes widespread that a human calling himself Shadowheart is killing Klingons and leading a rebellion, that would just fan the flames. Worf says he will do anything that is asked of him by the Admiral and Gauron. Riker is assigned to accompany Worf, as is Worf's blood brother, Kern, on the secret mission into Klingon territory. Gauron warns them that only the High Council will know of this mission. Even the local governor, Limad, will not know of it, so if they get into trouble, they are on their own. Mr. Phelps, if you choose to accept this mission and get caught, the State Department will disavow any knowledge of your actions. To be continued. I think that last part was ad lib. It was, but it was, it just, as soon as they said all that, the Garon was saying all that stuff, you know, you're on your own, whatever, I was like, I got such a strong Mission Impossible vibe, I had to say it. And it will be an impossible mission. 
it will be an impact, as we find out. Because you have to... You have one brother trying to find his adoptive brother. Mm-hmm. One man trying to find his adoptive brother. Right. And thus saving the Federation and maybe Klingon some embarrassment. Mm-hmm. And then you have the b- blood brother tagging along. He's not going to have the same loyalties as Worf. No, he isn't. Because he might Damn be it. a little jealous that that other brother got to grow up with his big brother, his real brother. Exactly. Might have a little rivalry there going. Exactly. You got a blood brother, and then you have a brother by chance, I believe they refer to it later in the issues. They do. And uh, that's going to cause a little uh, little friction there. What will Worf do? What will he do? I think Worf will be okay. I think Kern will be okay, too. I was just... Yeah, <laughs> I was just—I did think it was funny that the Worf's adoptive brother and his blood brother are all going to be in the same story. Exactly. It's ripe for some conflict. Right, indeed. As we will discover. So uh, th- I thought this story, this issue was was good setup. I think they kind of drug out the reveal that he's a human, even because because you know from the cover that that uh, he's human. So I don't know why they the shadow heart guy. Right. You don't have to keep him in the hood the whole time. Right. We kind of already know. Right. And if you recognize the character that Paul Sarvino played then uh, from the TV episode, then you would probably know right away these Nikolai. Although, quite frankly, I personally do not remember that episode at all. Well, that's not good. I know it isn't good. So when I first looked at this issue was like why the heck is Paul Sarvino on the cover I have no clue <laughs> and finally I looked it up you know I, I typed in and the wonderfulness of the intertubes uh, mm-hmm. Paul Sarvino Star Trek and then of course uh, Memory Alpha comes up and I find out he played Nikolai in an episode it was like oh cool okay uh, I wish I had seen that episode or I could remember it but because <laughs> maybe, well, maybe I did see it I just don't remember it but, I'm sure uh, you saw it and I'm sure we talked about it when we did the, uh, you know, elsewhere when when that issue when that episode came did on. Did we? Okay. We had to. Have. But I don't think we mentioned who the actors were. Uh, probably not, because anyway. we, we do try to be a little brief on there, because we've already kept somebody listening for an hour, and I'm sure they're yeah. pretty, pretty sick of us sure. by then. So the episode of the TV series was called Homeward, and right. and you had looked up the synopsis, which has interesting lead-in to this story. Yeah. Uh, and I was going to add one. I've, I've been debating that. Uh, so in that episode, Rosinko, he basically gets Picard to do what they were planning on doing in Star Trek Insurrection, beam a bunch of primitives off of a planet, put them on the holodeck so they don't know they moved, and then beam them back to a new planet where they'll be safe. And then he ends up staying with them. So I was debating, is that is that the colony that gets destroyed at the beginning of this book, or is that supposed to happen later? Uh, I don't know. Because, you know, the, this issue came out after Generations came out, so they were just kind of cherry-picking where they put stories. It's not like right. this was in between Season 7 and, and Generations. So um, I, I'm not 100% positive where this story fits in relationship to that story. Yeah, and, and I'm not 100% sure either, but I would I would probably lay money that this comes after that episode. Because 
he's all scarred and stuff, right? From I assume from the attack on on the colony. Right. Well, uh, and as you know, they do have some really good plastic surgery in the future. Uh, well, yeah, but it's it, well, and, and I, I don't I I have not read the series, so I don't know how the story ends. But considering his chosen occupation, <laughs> rebel leader, <laughs> I mean, who knows what's going to happen to Nikolai? But uh, right. Well, yeah. and the only reason why I question that theory is we see some other people go through some changes in this later two issues that have to be reversed. So you would think that you know maybe whatever's going on with Nikolai can be reversed as well, and then he can be back to his you know homeward look. But who knows? We'll, we'll, we got another issue to go. Okay. So let's let's yeah. talk about it more next week. Okay, that's fine. All right, so uh, yeah, this issue, good. Um, I do think they have an interesting way of depicting people being hit by phasers or disruptors, don't you mm-hmm. think? Like when yeah. that uh, bird of prey on the first couple pages is getting pierced with uh, some sort of disruptor cannon, right? And you see people inside of the ship being vaporized, and they're saying, "Ah!" <laughs> and when it's cutting through the hull and it says Shrek right. and you can see the beam coming through right. and that beam almost has like a double helix kind of look to it so there's the red beam in the middle and then there's kind of like a, a stringy kind of curly cue kind of thing going around the beam mm-hmm. I've never quite seen that before oh, it's an interesting look Yeah. And, and then when it hits people which it seems to hit people a lot <laughs> they kind of they're all depicted as red and have these little uh, yeah. circles all around them kind of like they're I guess it's supposed to be depicting them disintegrating and they pretty much always say I <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that red beam coming up through the ship I mean it's like I mean it's it, it's a beam that comes in one side and out the other so yeah, it uh, slices right through them right it's like butter. <laughs> Cutting through that ship like butter. Yeah, so that's a powerful that's a powerful weapon. That's not yeah. a, a typical little walk around disruptor. That's uh something pretty you know pretty potent. So how 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 would rebels like that get such a weapon? I don't know, maybe we'll maybe we'll get an answer later. Maybe we will. But the uh you know, it there on page five it actually shows shows it on a tripod with yep. the you know, caveman-looking Klingons all around it in Shadowheart. Sure. Uh, it it kind of reminded me of like the the giant um, disruptor cannon that Khan has. Is, oops, spoiler! Uh, in Into Darkness, right? Where he's just swinging that giant cannon around that obviously was not made to be used as a hand weapon. <laughs> exactly, with one <laughs> arm. But I think he takes out quite a few. Klingons. Klingons. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, also Klingon birds of prey or whatever those were, exactly. little scout ships with it. Exactly. So it's kind of like this gun. Except it is like that. It's just carrying it around with right. a, a regular rifle in one hand and this cannon in the other. Right. Kicking butt and taking names. Yeah. I thought that the installation being overrun, the armory, floating armory, floating installation, Klingon installation, that was overrun so quickly and easily, it's like. Didn't they have shields or something? I mean, 
I mean, they do have shields. They said they had shields uh, right. at the end. So they're basically that slow and dim-witted enough that they couldn't do something more than just fire a few hand weapons at these incoming rebels. I thought, I thought the whole takeover of that installation was way too easy. Right. But yeah, and obviously this is not the first one they've done since they already had the the big hand cannon and or uh, particle cannon, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So. And we find out in later issues that it it's happening all over the planet, right? Which you think, and the thing is, is that these primitives are coming up to the floating city in like little open air sleds of some sort, mm-hmm. speeder sleds, right? So why not just take all your weapons and put them in orbit where they couldn't get to you in speeder sleds? Yeah, or at least be a little bit quicker about doing what they were trying to do, which is to get disruptor cannons in place. Right. In your in your floating uh, armory. They should have been a little bit quicker about that. But the commander of the installation did say it was very slow in getting those weapons. So well, it's like, why was it so slow in getting there? Hmm. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so there was so, something going on. So you thought uh, Shadowheart took over it a little too fast. Completely. Are you kidding? Yes. I mean, there's supposed to be Klingons in that installation, right? Right, but they're fa- they're fighting caveman Klingons who are much more powerful. <laughs> well, okay, but you know, a disruptor works pretty good. You know, probably whether you're a caveman guy or not. But but the, yes, yes the, there are multiple things going on here that we don't fully understand yet. Like for instance, how does Nikolai get so powerful enough that he could take on a Klingon mano y mano? And and kill him so quickly. Right. He's a human. On top of everything else, he's a human. How do you right. do that? It's amazing. It's amazing. There's extra things going on here. We don't know what it is yet. Right. So right. between page 13 and 14 and 15, that, that attack scene, we see yeah. five different Klingons getting hit with the disruptors and vanishing. Right. It just yeah, seemed, yeah. That was a lot of that was a lot of folks getting hit and then saying <laughs> as they vanish forever. And I like how they how they had them vanish. It's like red ink. So 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 the beams were like a hot pink. Right. And then the people hot that were, hot pink and then the Klingons that were getting hit were hot pink also and kind of I, I liked how, I like the drawing effect they did. Mm-hmm. They looks pretty cool. Yeah, I just worried that maybe they they're overdoing it, and then they do something with it in the next issue that I really really don't like. Oh, I just want to point out that you get hit by this thing, you're evaporating immediately. Right. Remember that. Yes, I will do that. I will do that. So I'm just saying, we saw a ship get take out several of them in that ship in the first page. Here we see five in within three pages. If you get hit by one of these beams, you're gone. You're toast. Exactly. These disruptors are nasty. There's no flesh wound. No. <laughs> you're immediately disintegrated in a very painful way. Right. Cool. Okay. So I, I definitely, at the end of this issue, it was not clear to me at all why Worf had to go on a Mission Impossible mission here. And the Klingon governor of Nathra couldn't know about what he's doing. That was not clear to me at all. It seemed totally artificial. You know, what, I think why, it was what, just the whole family 
family reunion thing that maybe uh, Worf Worf could be a good liaison between the Federation because he's half Federation, half Klingon. Okay. And then you take Kern, who's all Klingon, but related to Worf. Uh huh. And then you take Riker, who's you know really good friends with Worf and all Federation. So you needed those three as checks and balances. Okay. But I still don't understand why the governor could not know about it. Um, that's, well, the, that's the part I'm questioning. And, and now we find out later, but at this point in the story... Because it's so secret, Ken. It's but secret. why is it secret? You, because Galron says it is. Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So there's no explanation for it. All you know is that, for some reason, the governor is not being told, even though he could facilitate this... Um, this mission um, and there, there doesn't seem to be it, it just seemed artificial to me at this point in what I knew about the storyline yeah I get what you're and saying and it, it kind of bugged me a little bit artificial you know artificial tension make it make the make the mission even more difficult for no good reason right which we find out there is a good reason but you, At this point, you we don't know it. that. I just went with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just I just hate when they do artificial things just to make things more, well, more difficult, more, well, how will they get out of this one? Right. No, I'm totally with you. You know, and if it makes sense, that's fine. It's just if it seems like it's totally artificial, then it's like, uh, eh. Anyway. That's my last comment on this one. I thought the I thought the artwork was quite quite good. I, I and the writing was pretty good. I, mm-hmm. I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it. Um, I just want to comment on one of your synopsis Points. comments. Okay. Was the uh, the chair that Worf is sitting in? Yes. Uh, on page seventeen. Yes. So I think we've seen this chair before. It's it's um it basically looks like it's a bunch of balls on poles that then connect to like a central rod stock right. rod yeah right so he has his butt on one ball which does not look comfortable at all it does not look comfortable at all because it's it's a it looks like a steel ball that he's sitting on yeah and then he has a, a an uneven two sets of balls on each side of him that he can rest <laughs> his elbows on but one's I up higher than uneven the other. balls <laughs> And then he has like one for a foot rest, maybe another one that he's just not using at the time, and then yep. a couple behind him to, uh, to support a back his back. But right, you know, when you see it, I think you see this on the Enterprise in his room, and it looks, you know, it's just like an abstract version of a chair, but you don't yep. ever actually see him sitting on it, and it just looks really uncomfortable. <laughs> and is that supposed to be like, oh, it's a Klingon thing. You're not supposed to be comfortable. You're not supposed is to that... be comfortable, maybe. Yeah, because it looks like his right cheek is on the ball, and his left cheek is like dangling there. It's like, oh, that just, that, that just doesn't look comfortable. No. Anyway, but he looks truly deep in thought. Yeah, he looks like the, you know, the... Ah, thinker. Who, yeah, the thinker. Who did that? Rodan. One? Rodan. I was going to say Dante, but that was his other... That was Rodon's other big masterpieces, uh, Dante's Inferno. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. So Dante, the author. Well, no, uh, Rodan did a sculpture of, of you know, of a, the Inferno, of the Inferno. So it's oh, it's cool. actually like I this big, 
Yeah, it's really cool because I've seen it and uh, they had it in Tokyo when I was there. Yeah. They actually, it's like a, a gateway kind of thing and it's just all these writhing people. It's, right. it's kind of depressing when you look at it, but it's pretty cool how he did it. So um, this is like a, a, a statue? This is right. like it's, a sculpture? Yeah, it, it's a, you know bronze, so just uh-huh. like the thinker is. Right. Um, but it, it, it's worth a look up. Yeah, cool. it's uh, it, and, and like you know, when he made the molds, each each person in the um, the inferno is also you know could be a separate mold. So you know, some of the people that are being depicted in the uh, you know the collage of of uh, writhing people he, are actually some of his you know uh, one-off works as well. It's pretty cool. But anyways, that has nothing to do with what we were trying to say. Yes, it looks like Dante or uh, Rodan's the thinker. Cool. All right. Anything else? Nothing. Not on this one. All right. I think I had one more. Oh, I liked to see the uh, eye patch on the the Klingon at the beginning. Uh huh. Like Kang from Star Trek right. Six. Uh huh. But that was cool. Yeah. With rivets. Right. Just drilled right into the the eye socket. Exactly. This patch ain't coming off, baby. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's jump into issue number two if we're done. Uh, this came out January of 1995. It is entitled Dealers in the Darkness. All the uh, writing staff is the same, so we won't do that. The cover is a truly beautiful painting, in my opinion. I really like this. The middle and the majority of the page is filled with Worf's head, kind of looking off to the side. And his head is actually haloed in flames. To the lower left side of the page, we see the Dura sisters. And to the lower right, we see a Klingon male in some sort of spacesuit with a uh, clear domed helmet. So the story starts off on Earth. Helena Rosinko is unable to sleep due to worrying about her son, Nikolai. She has heard that he fought bravely and that he died defending the colony. But she wonders if he ever thought about them, his parents. Sergei tells his wife that their son loved him, even though he may not have showed it. Back on the Enterprise, Worf Slogs catches up on what happened last issue. Nikolai was believed dead. Now he's found out to be the leader of a rebellion and calling himself Shadowheart. Worf and Riker beam over to a bird of prey where they meet the third party of their team, Kern. Worf's biological brother. They are going to travel to Shadowheart's planet to try to get him. Riker is happy to see the sons of Moog so pleased to be reunited. He says that if he had a brother, then he is sure that he would be just as happy to see him as well. Riker may not have a brother, but he does have an exact clone, which is pretty damn close and not mentioned at all in this book. As Kern and Riker discuss tactics... Worf recalls his first day at Starfleet Academy and the advice that his older brother gave him. Nikolai tells Worf to do well, but not to draw the ire of the upperclassmen. As the Bird of Prey approaches their destination, Kern tells Riker the origin of the name Shadowheart. Shadowheart was a demon that tried to overthrow the Klingon devil. Though he failed, the devil respected him enough for trying and placed him in charge of all the shadows in the mortal world. Belief is that when you see Shadowheart, then it is the day you will die. 
The trio beam down to the planet clad in bulky environmental suits. They each have a remote transporter control attached to their arms. And Kern advises them to keep their helmets on at all times due to the gases of the planet. Once Worf establishes that he is in command of the mission, they enter a cantina of sorts. It is filled with brawling and drinking Klingons. Most of them are still wearing their suits' helmets, so it's not quite sure how anyone. So I'm not quite sure how everyone is drinking in this bar. They find a table and wait for their contact. Before long, he arrives and gives them a map in exchange for some credits. Once the handoff is made, a Klingon notices the transaction and starts to arrest the trio, or quartet, now that the uh, informant is there. Worf and company resist, and a full-fledged bar fight ensues. The team escape the bar, and their informant joins them, knowing that if he gets caught, they will kill him, since they know he's sold them something. As they escape the city, Worf is shot with one of the disruptors. The disruptor slowly eats away his suit, and he's able to strip it off before it disintegrates any flesh. The quartet now run into the jungle and escape their pursuers, for now. Elsewhere on the planet, the Dura sisters pay a visit to the governor. We learn that the governor is in charge of the raids on the outlying planets for materials to raise funding for the Dura sisters to buy an army. So the sisters are now responsible for the death of Nikolai's colony. That makes them even better. The governor tells them about Shadowheart, who is plaguing his resources on this planet. He assures them that they now have a lead on where Shadowheart is, and his chief of security is on his way. Back on the Enterprise, Picard and Troy talk about Alexander missing and being worried about his father. They then speculate how close Worf and Nikolai were after what happened at the Academy. On the planet, the suitless Worf seems to be okay with the Pinus gas. They travel in the jungle for some time, and they come across a hive of large ants. The ants, we are told, are fatal with a single bite, and they can eat through the containment suits. As they flee the swarm, Riker trips and falls. Worf turns around to help him, but Kern holds him back, saying, If they go back, then they will all die. To be continued. That wimpy Riker. Darn him. That weak human. Yeah, it should have been the, uh, you know, the informant guy. Yeah. Because I don't like, you know, my species being misrepresented. Uh, Well, aren't they drawing Riker as, uh, you know, being significantly shorter than Worf and Kern? Which I object to because I'm pretty sure Riker was at least as tall, if not taller, than Michael Dorn. Now, I can't speak for Kern, because I don't remember seeing Kern around as much, that actor. Maybe he was taller, but... They're drawing Riker as being significantly shorter than, than well, Worf. Pa- I don't on, think that's right. On page 10, it shows them all kind of standing erect, you know, there in the doorway of the bar, and you're right. War- Riker is maybe a little shorter, only because I think Worf has all the extra ridges on his head. Nah. But if you can look, they're they're about eye level. It's just that Worf has more head at the top than than Riker does. Yeah. Well, he, I, I think he looks shorter than a ridge of his head. But 
Mm-hmm. And, and, but that's only one picture, and that's right. one panel. There are many panels before that where Riker is depicted as being, you know, kind of short compared to the other two. And I, I don't agree with that. And, and, may- and how are they depicted in those initial pages where Riker and Worf are just in these black leotards? <laughs> I mean, they look like, like, geez. They're bodybuilders. Like, they're bodybuilders. I mean, they, they look all bumpy and like, you know, these huge muscles and stuff. And that's, it kind of harkens back to some of those early um, next-gen comics where um, everybody was drawn like superheroes. Yeah, well, you know, with those two guys, it doesn't bother me that much because, yeah. you know, Riker and Worf are both always supposed to be depicted as these big, tough guys. Kick maybe, maybe they take it a little too far yeah. in some of those shots of their arms and chest. But, uh, and their legs, jeez. <laughs> they look like Popeye or something. But, uh, you know, it, it, Riker doesn't bother me like that. It bothered yeah. me when Picard looked like that. Yeah, that ju- that clearly was not appropriate. But uh, now nah, I see what you're saying about Riker being a little shorter than he's supposed to be. Maybe. Yeah, eh, that's fine. Whatever. So, what'd you think about that page of filler on page 23? About, I wonder, uh, I wonder how Alexander's doing. Uh, let me go back to that. Uh, tw- oh, got it. It's useless. Yeah, yeah, I know. If if I was doing the synopsis, I would have totally skipped that. I wanted to, but then I thought, well, I'm definitely going to talk about it later, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and point out how pointless it was. Right. Hey, we want to see, uh, you know, what's a, what's an episode without a little bit, little bit of Dash at Picard, not to mention... Uh, uh, maybe that's why they did it. Well, that and also acknowledge that, you know, we've got Alexander still out there, too. But whatever. Yeah, I thought it was useless. Mm. I agree. Yeah. So, big beef of the issue. These the suit, the disruptors. The yes. Disruptors that eat yep. through people instantly. I mean, you get hit and you're saying "I" <laughs> as you're disintegrating. Worf takes a shot, and it slowly disintegrates his suit long yeah. enough for him to even you know, get unbuckle out of it. Buckle it. Yeah. Slowly take it off. Yep throw it to the ground while it's still disintegrating and then they're walking off and it still shows it kind of, you know, finishing off. Yep. What the hell? <laughs> well, you know, so obviously they must be saying it was just just a it just hit like the shoulder it doesn't of the matter. suit and it did not, you know, directly come into contact with him. That's what they're saying. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I'm just saying what they're trying to say. And and I think it is very weak, but as we come to find out, it's important that Worf get out of that suit. You couldn't do it another way, have the suit break? You couldn't have a giant ant bite it? I don't know, but come on. <laughs> this was ridiculous. I was so upset yeah. on page uh, 15, 16. Well. And, and isn't it interesting what we choose to be upset about? <laughs> you know, I get upset about certain things. You get as upset about other things. Uh, I thought a... this was stupid. I mean, I knew they – at first it was like, well, why are they getting him out of his his, his containment suit? Right. Because that's all they're doing here. Yeah. I mean, it's stupid that, that the weapons are working this way, but why are they getting out of the containment suit? Is, is that supposed to just make it harder for Worf? You know, to accomplish the mission, but he's still rough and tough, so he does it anyway. Right. But then we, well, we'll see. 
Right. So they they don't seem to have an immediate uh, reaction to right. the planet's gases. Right. Anyway. Yeah, Worf's just walking. I mean, I think there was one picture where they show him like maybe his his head was was turned down while somebody else was talking, and you know maybe he was catching his breath or something. But other than that one panel, Worf looks fine. Right. You know, I, I hey, do baby, li- I'm moving. I do like that. You know, he he does say, you know, I seem to be okay now, but if I start to have a problem, maybe we can. Yeah. Uh, share. Body breathe or whatever. Right. Share. So yeah. somebody else breathe the air for a while while I wear your suit. So I thought that was kind of cool that they had a plan B. Right. Uh, That's know, reasonable. Even though he's, he's okay now. Right. But, uh, no, the reason why I don't like that containment suit disintegrating slowly is because the rest of the issue is pretty good. I don't have a single problem with it. Yeah. Um, I even like the ants. <laughs> I, thought that, I thought the ants thing was actually a pretty cool cliffhanger. The killer ants, yes. Yeah. Like on Earth. As we found out from the one, oh, what the, the fourth Indiana Jones movie? Yeah, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. There you go. There you go. But I don't think they could eat through containment suits. Those ones. <laughs> but they can't well, carry these... off Russians, so I guess. Exactly, <laughs> and consume them whole in in like the matter of minutes. Right. Yeah. No, I, I like the ants, and I, I liked everything except the containment suit part. And, and you really didn't like that. Really now, did not like it. Now. <laughs> I chose. I didn't like it, but I chose. Okay, fine. Let's move on. Right. Well, that's so, what you got to do. That's what you yeah, got. Exactly. Hey, and you know what, what they're going to do with Worf breathing the air. Uh, I kind of like that. So it's it's interesting. It sets up an interesting subplot that uh, we'll get more into next issue. Right. So I thought it was a nice touch working Boothby into mm-hmm. the uh, comic. In the flashback. Exactly. I thought, I thought he, that was good. Yeah, that was good. So he didn't have any <laughs> dialogue, but it was good to see him in, like, in the background. Right, just tending his plants. Exactly. Yep. And then I liked the legend of Shadowheart. I thought that yeah. was an extremely kind of interesting legend. And I really liked how the Klingons are like, you know, War Riker's like, well, nobody still believes that. And he's like, well, yeah, nobody used to, but now that Kalis is back... You know, who, who's oh. to believe what you know? What who's we thought was just legends is real. I mean, exactly. If Talos can come back, then who says Shadowheart wasn't real too? Yeah, but I thought that was great. I well, really like. Yeah, as long as you didn't think about it too much. I mean, Kalis was a real historical person, right? I mean, nobody doubted that, right? Right, right, right. Where Shadowheart is clearly a boogeyman. I mean, I mean, it's like like right. saying you know, it just. Yeah, I thought the legend was cool too. I enjoyed that. Yeah, and I and I just liked the acknowledgement that you know now that Kalis is back, yeah. people's beliefs are being rattled. You know, right? What what was thought of maybe just a superstition or something is actual could actually be real. You know, it, it, I, I I thought that was an interesting idea. Right. I didn't put it in the synopsis just because it doesn't really add, it doesn't it's not part of the overarching story. But right. the uh, I thought the thought of it was pretty cool. Yeah. Me too. So I like the remote control transport bracelets. Are they bracelets nine. or armbands? Oh, they're bracelets. Okay. I thought I think, they were armbands. Well, whatever. On uh, a normal human, that would be an armband, but on these <laughs> on these Herculean figures, it was just a bracelet. Oh, yeah, and it's got to get around the containment suit too. Right. So these transporter bracelets, 
remind me a lot of uh, Blake 7 TV show. So there was a ship there, and they, I guess because of budgetary reasons, plus it's just so cool, they did have transporters, although they didn't call them transporters, but they, they took that from Star Trek. But, but with that one, you needed to have one of these bracelets on, and that's how it would lock on you on the planet surface and, and beam you up. So I thought that was uh, kind of cool. It, was, cool. Uh, it wasn't as sophisticated as Star Trek, where you could magically beam somebody over with no equipment or nothing away from the ship. Right. But I, I thought that was kind of... It just reminded me of Blake 7. Mm. And I do like on, on this that they actually say that these are not transporters, but they're actual just transporter controls. Yeah, it's a remote control mechanism. Right. Whereas they're not using in, it for tracking or anything. But in Star Trek Nemesis, they have the same concept, but it's actual a transporter. It's a little tiny transporter device in a something that would fit in Data's hand. Remember, because he put it on Picard, and even though the Enterprise was completely dead in the water, it that device beamed Picard from the, you know, the scepter or whatever it was called over, right. to, over to the Enterprise. And I don't like that. No, it's patently ridiculous. Right. But if it's just a controller, a remote control to sure. a larger transporter, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's great. A remote control or some kind of locking device. Locator right. device, fine. But actually having enough power in a device that small to accomplish the transportation of somebody? <laughs> no. That's the one thing that I think they did well in, in Nemesis. Or not, yeah, not Nemesis. Uh, Insurrection. Yeah. Um, they had those little drones that would shoot those... Tags. Those tags. And then yeah. the transporter could lock onto those tags and beam them even though they were in a, an area that sensors couldn't penetrate. Sure. That I thought was actually pretty cool. Yeah, but uh, made a little yeah. sense. But right, but having a, a full fledged transporter in your hand that you could then just beam anywhere solely on that. Right. I, plus, you're transporting the transporter, which you know, as we saw in that Again. Space Nine issue. Uh, yeah, that's kind of stupid. Exactly. The thing that's actually accomplishing the transportation sequence, the cycle of doing it from point A to point B is in itself being disassembled and reassembled. Ridiculous. <laughs> Forget about it. You're right. I agree. 100%. Yeah. I thought at the end when uh, Riker was put in artificial danger, I thought that was... Uh, even though I, I agree, I like the, the ants. ants. I like the ants. But putting Riker in artificial danger like that, I at the end of the issue, to, to have you buy the next issue, I, I it's, again, it's... Just uh, artificial stuff. I'm not crazy about. But so, would you have rather had the, you know, the fourth guy trip and fall? Oh, I don't care about that. The one that we don't, we we don't know for sure if this guy makes it to the next issue because he's not in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Plus, you don't really care about that guy anyway. Right. But you're saying because you know Riker ultimately will be in the next movie, he's not going to be the one that gets eaten by these ants. Well, that's part of it, though. Not my main point. My main point is you you put somebody in artificial danger at the very end of the comic, obviously, blatantly, to have a cliffhanger to uh, bring you back to the next the by the next issue. It's a it's a it's a common mechanism. I'm just it's the artificiality of it is just just bothers me a little bit. Right. Which yeah. I really it's something you know I'm not I'm making a big deal about it because obviously it's a uh, it's a narrative tool which has been used for ever 
So you seem to be making a big deal out of it. <laughs> okay, I'm done. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> All right, cool. I'm, that was my last comment. Yeah, that's it for me too. Okay. What's next? What's next? Well, the next issue, of course, number three, My Brother's Keeper. Published date is February 1995. Writer is Michael Jan Friedman. Actually, it's the same folks, so I'm not going to go through it again. The cover is dominated by a profile view of Worf's head in the background. Riker's head, which is partially facing the reader, is in front of Worf's. Finally, a full-body view of Galran holding a batleth is up front. The cityscape of a Klingon city uh, at night is shown on the bottom of the cover. The issue picks up the action from where the last issue ended. Riker has twisted his ankle and is on the ground about to become ant bait when Worf rushes in to help Riker up over his protest to leave him behind. They run through the jungle to get away from the killer ants that they hear can move as fast as people can. With Riker in tow, first by Worf and then by Kern, the aggressive ants are gaining on them. Ibtok shoots his disruptor at the ants in the lead, but there are just too many of them. They make it to a river, then get into it, figuring the ants could not follow. Indeed, they do not, and since the river is actually going their way, they grab onto a big piece of driftwood and float downstream. Worf is lost in memory of another time and place when Nikolai almost drowned in a river very much like the one they find themselves in now. Worf's bravery and cleverness saved his older brother's life. At first, Nikolai feels bad that his younger brother had to save him, but he accepts it and thanks him. Worf is snapped out of his reverie by Ibtok, who says Riker is too soft and almost got them killed. He says it is better to slit his throat and be done with it. Riker offers to show Ibtok who is soft when Worf ends the argument. Worf tells them to keep quiet, lest other jungle predators take note of them. Suddenly, a rather pastel-colored serpent, easily 30 feet long or more, attacks and traps Kern and Ibtok in its python strong body. Riker pulls his disruptor out to take a shot, but Worf calls him off because Kern is too close to being in the line of fire. Worf moves forward and uses his big Klingon muscles to break the serpent's grip on Kern. Now, with a free shot at the serpent, Riker takes it and sends the beast slithering away in pain. Ibtok ends up being killed by the attack, so the two Klingons do the warrior's wail for him, despite the danger caused by the loud sounds. Meanwhile, on Quonos, Galran is discussing with a trusted advisor named Skorog the delicate game they are playing on Nathra. We find out that Galeron knows the governor Limad is in league with the Duras family, and that Galeron has been providing weapons to the Nathrani rebels. The more off-balance Galeron can keep Limnad, the less money he will be able to funnel to the Duras to fund their next attempt to take the leadership of the Empire away. On the other hand, if they make the rebels too well armed, and if the Shadowheart imposter is able to be taken too seriously, the more superstitious Klingons may take a turn towards fundamentalism, which would end the alliance with the Federation, 
and in all likelihood his leadership of the council. So, walk the tightrope he must. But to make the walk less precarious, he needs Worf to expose the shadow heart imposter. He must be removed from the equation. Back in the jungles of Nathra, Arnov, the governor's enforcer, and his men are looking for Worf and his party. They find Ibtok's dead body floating down the river. They know they are on the right trail since Ibtok was with those two strange Klingons and that human. Yes, that human. His presence indicates the Federation has newfound interest in Nathra, and he wants to know the basis of that interest. One of Arnov's men comments that he has never seen a human before. Arnov gloats that he has. In fact, he has seen plenty of them on Lasarian as he was burning them with his raiding party's disruptor beams. It was glorious how they wailed and shriveled in fear of death. But that was the past. Today he has fresh sport. Two Klingons and a human to hunt. He gloats he will be sucking on their bones by nightfall. Elsewhere, Worf, Kern, and Riker continue to make their way through the jungle. Worf is in the lead and seems to not feel the ill effects of the planet's noxious gases. In fact, Riker has noticed that Worf seems to be bigger, stronger, and even vicious. The way he broke that serpent's grip in the river, that was not a normal show of strength for Worf. Riker wonders if the changes in Worf are due to his exposure to the planet's unique gases. He and Kern are protected from them, but Worf has been fully exposed, and he seems to be thriving on them. Riker's last sobering thought is if Worf is growing that strong and that vicious, he could become the most dangerous thing in the jungle. As they march ever forward, Kern continues to remind Worf his responsibility to stop the madman he calls Shadowheart no matter who Shadowheart is. Worf continues on in silence. He must be torn by responsibilities between his blood brother and his brother by chance. Worf remembers back to a childhood incident that took place on a soccer pitch. Worf was attempting to move the ball downfield, but his awkward feet made him easy pickings for an older boy with a big mouth. His insults, as well as him tripping over Worf to the ground, triggered Nikolai to stand up for his adopted brother. In the end, the older boy beat Nikolai up pretty badly. Later at home, his father tended to Nikolai's wounds and told Nikolai how proud he was of him, as was Worf. Worf's thoughts are interrupted by sudden winds. The storms on Nathra can turn ugly quickly, and they can kill. The wind becomes incredibly strong. Gale force. Worf is barely able to hold on to a nearby tree with one arm and then Riker with the other. Kern is barely able to hold on also. The wind finally subsides and they are safe. Elsewhere, Arnov and his men are also recovering from the windstorm. A third of them are dead or out of commission. Arnov's man with the tricorder confirms that their prey is still ahead, apparently still alive so the hunt continues. Worf and his party are attacked by the rebels on flying sleds. Worf gives them a good fight, but eventually they are knocked into unconsciousness and taken prisoner. To be continued. Mm. Okay, so finally, contact is made with the rebels. Yeah, and he was fighting them with a stick. Did you mention that part? No, I I decided (laughs) to move things along. That's the best part. So, uh, Worf, you know, 
well, let's call him Hulk Wharf now because <laughs> his hair is just flowing everywhere. <laughs> or Conan. He looks more like Conan than anybody else. Uh, he looks gigantic. And he just grabs a tree branch, rips it off, and then that's what he's using to uh, fight off the rebels. Exactly. And doing an okay job of it at first, but there's just too many of them. They have weapons, and they have flying sleds. Right, which they use the flying sleds to take out most of them. Right, So they actually hit Kern in the head with one of the sleds, and then... The first one to go down. Right, they grab Riker while zooming by, hold on to him long enough, and then, then they let him go, so then he smashes into a tree. Right. Uh, and then, uh, then they, oh, they hit Worf too, right? They just hit him, run him over with the sled. Right. So, you don't ever see that. You don't ever see them use their vehicles as, as the, the weapon. Ramming weapons. Right. I thought that was actually pretty cool. Yeah. I don't see how any of them are going to get up and walk off, walk off, uh, you know, getting hit by a high-speed vehicle like that but uh, sure and then Riker he's thrown into a tree <laughs> and the tree almost like shatters uh, yeah so um, <clears throat> either he's got a broken back or that containment suit's real good yeah as far as protectiveness <laughs> definitely on these pages Worf is a good head taller than Riker is now yeah which is yeah. convenient that you know his <clears throat> costume is stretchy Oh, to, right. You know, yeah, his black outfit. Right. His leotard. To not split open like, like the Hulk clothes. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Warp smash. Right. Well, I mean, that's kind of what he's, he's, he's moving towards. Right. And now you're getting an idea of how Nikolai became Shadowheart. So obviously he was similarly affected and now has uh, been Hulkized. Right, and it also kind of explains who these primitives, these cavemen, really are. That uh, perhaps they're not a you know distant cousin of the Klingons, like like it was kind of mentioned at the first issue. I'm thinking that these actually are Klingons that have been just breathing the normal air for so long that they've now right. reverted to these caveman Hulk-like Klingons. Right. Which which is you know I mean if that's what you're going to say happens when you breathe these gases, then I think it's kind of interesting. Not very plausible scientifically, thinking that you can breathe in a gas and then turn into the Hulk, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Because <laughs> yeah, we all know that's gamma radiation. Come right. on. So once you, once you swallow that pill, I actually uh, think this is actually a kind of a cool storyline. But yeah. the, uh, the planet is actually caused this other race of what, what they think is a primitive version of themselves, but is in reality just Klingons, normal Klingons. Yeah, and it's interesting how they supposedly have been on that planet for a hundred years, mm-hmm. and nobody's figured this out yet? Too busy plundering, you don't... You don't I uh, guess so. You think the Vikings, uh, you know, started pulling out their, you know... Um, Taking off their containment suits? I don't think so. Or do you think they just started doing scientific uh, experiments on the, the, you know, the countries and the islands and stuff that they were conquering. No, they just came, took what they want, went back home. Yeah, well, yeah. But, I, you know, oh, for a hundred years, I mean, you could have a suit failure or, you know, just random chance. I don't know, something. Right. you discover something's going on with those gases. But Well, maybe short-term not. exposure doesn't hurt you, obviously. So. Well, oh, obviously. That's well, given. 
And in that cantina, that bar scene, which is in right. the city, which is in a little domed shield, which which I don't know if we talked about last issue, you know, there was some people without their suits on. And obviously you needed to take your suit off at some point to <laughs> drink, you know, drink. Uh-huh. Good point. Good unless point. you have like a little straw that pops out. Uh, <laughs> when you which really would have kind of ruined the, uh, the feel of the, uh, of the bar. Right. If they all had little 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 curly straws or something. <laughs> exactly. They were drinking their blood wine with. So I, I this is a completely separate note, but one April first, a long time ago, the um, StarWars.com, the official Star Wars website, mm-hmm. uh, they came out with these long lost storyboards from uh, deleted scenes from Empire Strikes Back. Right. So you know it was. You know, right around the time Episode One was coming out, so Star Wars was pretty popular again. Right. So jumped over there to read it. What, what was these lost scenes from Empire Strikes Back? So jump over there, and it's the scene where Han shoots Vader, and then Vader says, "We'd be honored if you join us for dinner." Mm-hmm. And then it showed like you know Boba Fett sitting there, and then he picks up a drink, and then this little straw comes out of his mouth, and he ah! <laughs> and then it was like you know Chewbacca like making a mess, the eating dinner and things like that. But the the whole Boba Fett straw thing I always thought was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. That sounds like good comedy to me. Yeah, it was good. I don't know why they would have deleted those scenes. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was a good April first joke. Yeah. Anyways, these gases turn you into the Hulk. Yes. Yeah, it's perfectly reasonable. It. Let's go with it, kid. Exactly. Exactly. Not quite sure why it makes your hair grow out and change color, but we'll go with just go with that too. Yeah. So I thought it was kind of interesting how some of the containment suits were different styles. So Arnov's men, mm-hmm. he had a bubble kind of thing, so you could see his face and stuff. Right. Like Worf and and the others. But a lot of his men have kind of like uh, I don't know, stormtrooper kind of full facial covering kind of suits. Right. And I just wondered why. You know why? Why have the different styles? But well, because because one actor you want to see his face, you're going to pay uh-huh. him a little extra money, and then the other one just random extra that you don't want to see his face. Well, and that's fine if this was really not a comic book. But what? It's not real. <laughs> Pro- oh, I, I know what it is. They probably didn't yeah. want to put the makeup on everybody, so we'll just put a helmet on you, and you it's can't a comic tell book. Them. Oh, that's right. I forgot. That's a comic book. I don't know. But <laughs> so I kind of wonder why they did that. But. But I kind of liked the, uh, you know, the troopers' helmets. I thought they looked actually pretty cool. Yeah, they do look pretty cool. It's like the little breathing tubes that that mm-hmm. go into the mouth area. Right. Kind of gives it a insect look a little bit. Right. But it, they look cool. I just didn't know the reason for the different styles. Yeah, because I I'm not a big fan of the bubble look. Right. But anyways, no, I liked it. Uh, but as to the reason why, I don't know. Yeah. The artist thought it looked cool. Right. Speaking of Arnov, uh-huh. he's a nasty guy. Violent. I think he's a good, nasty character to put up against Worf. I think this is good. Because a, a, a good guy is only going to be as good as the bad guy that goes up against him. And this right. Arnov seems like a pretty nasty guy. So you think that there's a chance that he'll lose his containment suit to become all Hulkanized, and then they'll have a big dukeroo? Uh, I'm not sure about losing the containment thing, but I'm just saying in general. Because obviously you... Okay, so now the next issue, obviously Worf is going to talk to Nikolai, and they're going to 
do whatever they're going to do, and then eventually Arnov's going to show up, and then you have a big fight. And mm-hmm. so I, I don't know that Arnov's going to have the time to become all Hulkized, but obviously him and his men, what's left of his men, are going to have a big old fight, I think. Right. No, I agree with you. So the viciousness of him, the out-and-out desire to just kill people, I think that should make him, even if he isn't Hulkized, should make him uh, formidable. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's a good bad guy. I mean, he... he he does have the same traits as like Darth Vader, you know, kill the person who gives you the bad news kind of thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you think uh, over time you would run out of minions, but exactly. <laughs> Especially after losing a third of your people to the storm. Right, that was a pretty nasty storm, and yeah, very and nasty storm. Both Kern and Worf were able to just hold on to tree limbs and make it through. Survive it, right? Right. That to me was one of the artificial <clears throat> dangers. Mm-hmm. Was the storm? Yeah. Well, it came out of nowhere. Right. No. Right. It came There's out of no nowhere. Of that Three before. pages later, a third of the bad guys are now dead. Right. Boy, that was convenient. And really, I don't know that they have. To, I mean, if it was just going to be Worf and his party up against Arnov and, and his party, getting rid of a third of them that'd be handy. Mm-hmm. But. Obviously, the whole rebels are in the mix now. So it's right. like, did you really have to get rid of a third of your men if you're going to go up against the combined forces? Probably. Well, you really think they're going to be fighting the rebels once he and Nikolai have a chat? I, I kind of feel like it'll be Worf and the rebels versus Nikolai and the Klingons who are then working with the Dura sisters. So. Uh. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is Arnov versus the rebels and right. Worf's party. That's right, right. what I'm okay. saying. Gotcha. Right. Which I think we're in sync on that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're saying they probably needed their extra thirty percent or whatever it was, right? Uh, because they're going to be fighting all the rebels. Okay, yes. I got you now. And Worf and and his party. Yep. In the end. Right. So. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the the fourth issue. I, I yeah. was going to start reading it last night, but then I was just like, ah, you know what? I'd rather talk about it without knowing how it all ends. Right. So. As as I have not read it either. I am getting a little sick of all these flashbacks, though, to Worf's childhood. Let's yeah, just every, get on with it. Every issue is just like, hmm, that reminds me. Hmm. <laughs> right. So for the longest time, you're seeing... So it seems to be going backward in time, more or less. So you're seeing some Academy Days stuff, or, well, whatever. He's jumping back and forth in time. And and at least you're seeing one scenario where Nikolai is okay with Worf's help. So that's mm-hmm. good. Because most of the, the other flashbacks, Nikolai's been kind of a jerk over Worf's aid. Right. So... It's good to see at least that there was one point in time when Nikolai was a little bit more reasonable and accepted the aid. So, Which might have been like the first time. So right. when he pulled him out of the right. water, that was the first time that he started helping <clears throat> him. And then every time after that, it was always the other way around. Because I think you're right. They might be going backwards in time. Because the, the, the flashback after that one was when they were even younger and, and Nikolai had to help Worf. Right. Yes, yes, with the soccer pitch thing. Yeah, so we're seeing a little bit more reason why Nikolai became such a jerk, but still. I don't see that as being a reason. 
he, he seems to be uh, so that that academy days where he finally breaks uh you know walks out which yeah that that seems pretty extreme <laughs> that's pretty extreme behavior right yeah so the you save me you kick some guy's butt i'm quitting yeah because i'm not the big brother yeah it's that's like so stupid yeah his reaction is quite extreme. Now I can understand being a bit embarrassed by that, but it's come sure, on. I sure. mean, you're you're but old to, enough at that point that you've caught up to each other. I mean, from a, from a, a maturation standpoint, you're both at Starfleet Academy. It's like, come on, whatever. Right, and that's going to happen. Yeah, you know, just like there's always going to be a time when the son can eventually <laughs> take on the dad or whatever. Right. You know, that that's going to. I mean, it's going to be even faster. With two brothers that are only a sure. couple years apart. Exactly, right. Yeah, yeah. It's too extreme to right. suddenly quit quit all his life's dreams and cut all ties to his family and run off to a... Yeah, isn't that extreme? Uh, not talking to his parents. That's like, come on, lighten up. Jeez. Yeah. I can see that maybe being an initial thing, but once you calm down... Sure. It's like, over years, wouldn't you want to see your parents again or talk to them? Right. Worf wouldn't let me get beat up by those upperclassmen. I quit. I'm no longer. And I'm not talking to my parents either. Exactly. Hey, you whiny babe. (laughs) Baby. All right. What else you got on this one? I didn't. I didn't like how Riker was so wimpy in the story, but at least he's showing that he's got the wisdom and brains to notice what's happening with Worf. Right. And projecting forward on what might might ultimately be happening. So I'm glad at least he's exercised doing something in the story other than being, uh, you know, the wimpy guy that always has to be helped. The damsel in distress. Exactly. I mean, basically, he's like Deanna. He's Deanna in the story. <laughs> well, good thing he wasn't the one that got caught up by the, the serpent, the hot pink serpent. Right. So at least he has that going for him. But aside from that, every other thing, he's been the one that needed the saving. Exactly. And that's uh, the last thing I have to say for right now. Cool. All right. Well, then uh, we won't do any elsewheres because uh, these months will be covered in the normal the normal weeks. Okay. And um, I guess that's it. Cool. So, yeah. Looking forward to next week to uh, see how this wraps up along with the annual. Yeah. Yeah. And the annual is going to be cool because it's based in the... Mirror Universe, or at least has the Mirror Universe in it, the Deep Space Nine Mirror Universe uh, storyline. Cool. With Smiley and other... Smiley O'Brien. So, should be interesting. I haven't read that one. Good, me neither. The Looking Glass War, I think is what it's called. Ah. So. Cool. All right. Well, hopefully everybody stuck around and and, uh, talk to you next week. Yes, thanks. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you guys next time on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.st comicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review